Try again there, Mark. Okay. Am I gaining enough? Ooh, now you're now you're just. I don't want to ASMR. Is it, is it time for some, time for some loss? Yeah, there we go. That's nice. Look at the size of those peaks. I've got some big ass peaks. I've heard that before. <laughs> People usually say that about me. That's good. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Discovering Darwin, a podcast dedicated to the writings and musings of Charles Darwin. My name is James Wagner. I'm professor of biology at Transylvania University. Stumbled that place. Them. Yep. Yeah, that one. <laughs> and um, this episode, I'm jo- joined by my two esteemed colleagues, uh, Dr. Sarah Bray, professor of biology, uh, associate dean of App. Approbation and disapprobation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very, very shortly. Yeah, that word was peppered through this chapter, if you noticed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's just for me. Thanks, yeah. Chuck. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Mark Jackson, professor of psychology and uh, Crokinole champion of the university? Uh, I, well, yes, of the, of, of the second floor of old Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> Which is most of the Crokinole yeah. Yeah. going. That's where the Crokinole Center oh, is yes, yes, yes. on this campus. <laughs> so, but, uh, but it's a very, I'm a big fish in a small, small pond <laughs> when it comes to Crokinole. <laughs> it's very, it's underground. It's like Fight Club. Yeah. You know, first rule of Crokinole. Can't talk about crocodile. Can't talk about crocodile. <laughs> so crocodile um, is, it reminded me of in middle school when we used to play football, paper football, where we take the paper and fold it into a little triangle shape yep. and you would flick it across the table and try to get it to hang off the edge, but not go off the edge. Exactly. And then if you did, then right, then you get to hold it and then you're, <laughs> kid across his has to hold his fingers in a way and then you flick it and maybe poke his eye out at the corner or hit him in the head that's right, right. that's a, it's yeah. a sophisticated version of that game isn't it it's a much older version of that game oh really oh yeah the crocodile was invented in the 1880s ah. so actually right about our time here yeah. here and would you quickly describe because i'm sure the listeners are like what uh, yeah well i'll put we'll put a picture of the board up there the so game. it's this it's this wonderful old canadian game very simple rules um it's a it's the boards are kind of like a work of Beautiful, art. They're yeah. these big, round, uh, polished to within an inch of its life, wood, typically maple-covered um, board. That's kind of a, the, the game itself is a combination. It's got elements of curling. It's got elements of shuffleboard. shuffleboard. It's got elements of pool. And you're basically flicking these discs, taking turns, uh, flicking these discs, sliding them across this this high gloss wood board, uh, trying to get it to land at certain places, occasionally trying to knock your opponent's pieces off. Yeah, and it's, yeah, like it's also like a snooker in a way. You've got mm-hmm. to, or nine ball. You've got to hit the other right. person's yeah. piece. Yeah, well, and that's important yeah. part of it. Yeah, it's fun, yeah. and the games are really fast. Like once you understand the rules, which are not complicated. Um, then the, no. the games just go quick. So I'm can, a really aggressive flicker. She is. <laughs> no she one is, is surprised by that. No, we're we're going to have to get a crocodile helmet. Yeah. Right. Mouth guards. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this episode, we've decided to come back to, uh, as you might remember, we're reading Charles Darwin's Descent of Man. It's uh, the 150th anniversary, right? Of, of this book for the last few weeks for, it yes was, the last <laughs> few weeks this is, and we are going to do chapter four and chapter five I asked uh, both uh, Sarah and Mark to sort of just focus on that and we wanted to focus on the writing and some of the big ideas and then I think next episode we might have another special guest but but for now it's, you're stuck with us <laughs> sorry and, uh, yes um, and our podcast is sponsored by bourbon when you have to drink <laughs> drink bourbon <laughs> 
And Mark, thank you for your generous supply of bourbon today. Oh, my pleasure. Literally, my pleasure. Delicious. <laughs> so uh, this, these two chapters, as um, I noted, I went back and looked at um, a facsimile of the original book. And on chapter four, at the top of the page, he actually uses moral sense as the shorthand mm. like, indicator for what this chapter is. Our book does, mm-hmm. but I thought that was something that the new edition added. But it turns out, no, that actually was the t- sort of the title of the chapter four. But that's not at all what the actual authentic title of chapter four is. And then I'm going to read it to you really quick. The chapter is called Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals Continued. But he obviously thinks that the real chapter is called Moral Sense. Right, right. So, Mark, do you mind sort of help orienting us? Because that word morality gets used a lot and moral right. morals get used a lot, but there's often confusion of what that actually means. Yeah, and, you know, I, I know for me for sure, I assume everybody's kind of the same way because your, your morals are confusing? Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but that we just, you know, we, we, we use that term just assuming that everybody's on the same page, you know, when we, uh, are, that we all know exactly what that means. But it's but it's complicated, and and that's sort of one of the things he's doing. I think in this chapter is is trying to figure out what morality is. Well, maybe not. No, I take that back. Not what morality is, but what contributes to morality. But he's also he never really defines yeah. what it is. That's right? the frustrating thing for yeah, me. Right? Yeah. He just jumps right into it, and right. like we're all well, we all know what we're talking about. But I think that's fair. I mean, it's you know, it, it's certainly an important point, and we're going to te- tease us out here in just a second. But you know, like same is true with emotions, right? We just you know, he's just launching into this, just assuming that. You, we all know what an emotion is, right? So let's just talk about it, as opposed to figuring out exactly mm-hmm. what it is. Um, and so, which was very helpful, James, you found on the uh, Stanford Plato site uh, of philosophy, sort of a, a, a definition for morality uh, that also teases apart the distinction between morality and moral theory. And so we all have moral theories, right? Uh, that drive our moral behavior. But, but they're still talking about two different things. So let me, do you mind if I just read Oh, that? yeah, please do. Yeah. Uh, see, okay. So the, the topic of this, this entry is not at least directly moral theory. Rather, it is the definition of morality. Moral theories are large and complex things. Definitions are not. Uh, the question of the definition of morality is the question of identifying the target of moral theorizing. Identifying this target enables us to see different moral theories as attempting to capture the very same thing. Uh, there does not seem to be much reason to think that a single definition of morality will be applicable to all moral discussions. One reason for this is that morality seems to be used in two distinct broad senses, a descriptive sense and a normative sense. More particularly, the term morality can be used either, one, descriptively to refer to certain codes of conduct put forward by a society or a group, such as a religion, or accepted by an individual for her own behavior, or two, normatively, to refer to a code of conduct that, given specified conditions, would be put forward by all rational people. So when I read that and and thinking about it, is it fair to say that that's making the argument that there's sort of moral rules that a group can define, but there may be this overarching true morality, Mm -hmm. right, that, that we're all striving eventually to get to? Yeah, and, and it seems like that's actually, as I think about this, is something that he's kind of wrestling with in this chapter uh, just a bit. You know, th- th- I, th- there's one last line to that mm-hmm. entry that you found. It says, uh, often the issues of morality are, uh, uh, are distilled in quips like between what is and what ought to be. And he talks a lot about ought in yes. this chapter. Yeah. 
Well, and it seems like to me there's like, and, and I think I just had to reprocess it for my own brain, <laughs> but I think it's really what you were reading is that there is this um, a moral sense, right? But the what is decided to be moral can change the normative part, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this. So I don't I don't know if I quite agree on the like. Oh, there's this. There is moral with a capital M in the mm. same way that there's truth with a capital T that we're all working right. towards, but rather just a sense that as a species, we will decide, you know, we have an ability to define something right. as moral, but what is moral depends upon, there or, seem to be some commonalities. Or, or maybe, right, it's, but, maybe it's moral as a construct and moral theories are operationalizations of that construct. I guess what I'm getting at is, and you know, this, maybe this is the the postmodern <laughs> world we're living in now, right? Is that different cultures can have different norms of what is moral behavior, right? Right. But we all, as a species, agree there is moral behavior, right? right. But, yeah. but what is moral in a given setting can vary, and and I think even Darwin in here has kind of two levels of mm-hmm. moral behavior, um, and one seems to be the things that that all cultures seem to like don't kill people don't right. steal their stuff well, right if you're in your if tribe. in your group yes yes exactly and you're not slowing everybody down yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I, I guess going back to why i actually read it the way i did sarah because one could say okay this culture says women have to stay in the house and they can't do x y and mm-hmm. z and they you know all the different things you can imagine that's that's the moral rules and that's what women do but we as you know, rational people would mm-hmm. say, you know, that's really not fair to them. We would not want a world in which, you know, children are working in this, or women are treated like that, or people of color are treated differently than people. And so I, I Do think, we? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, that's isn't that? I mean, this is maybe Pinkard and me, right? That we're mm-hmm. moving toward better, better and better, angels. better world, right? And that we have shifted those kinds of inclusive equalities over time and is there a, a ultimate place to be you know and of course he gives an account of that and it, it he attributes it to essentially colonization yes <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know the world is getting more moral and and uh higher because levels because the british, british have taken, taken over, over the world, the world. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't agree though with that no, idea? no i don't think so how come uh, because again, and maybe even it comes down back to what Darwin's saying, which is, I mean, he argues that morality starts first by treating members of your group in a certain way. True. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he argues that as we morally progress and develop, the group becomes larger and larger. And so I, I think that's what you're in a sense, that's what you're saying because, well, the, because both. I should cheat women, treat women the same way I should treat people who are of a different ethnic group the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe I'm just feeling very pessimistic right now. And so I can't, <laughs> I can't, I, I'm having a hard time yeah. seeing it as that there is this thing that we're actually all moving towards. Well, I don't know if we're all moving toward it, but do you not, I mean, is there not a normative sense of morality that we would, we would disengage from a religious argument or, whatever, these are the social norms we would think a very good society would have. Yeah, I don't think it requires religion to be moral, and Mm -hmm. and Darwin argues that too, right? Um, But But, people were arguing that before Darwin as well. And of course, you know, a lot of fundamentalist Christians would tell you that that can't be the case. You can't have morality without religion, without God, actually. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Which, again, I think if you look across 
human cultures today, right? There's still, yeah, groups, no matter mm-hmm. where you look, of that kind of fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because we know what mor- morals are with a capital M. <laughs> That's right. I, I guess it, I, this is just, it's amusing me because you, you are very against truth with a capital T. I am very. And so I find, find it funny that you're arguing for morality with a capital M. I think it's because... Um, <laughs> Oh, I like the way you put that, too. Yeah. Um, I think it's because if we follow that logic that uh, mor- morality develops in a social group, mm-hmm. a tribe, and as we humans get better, we make more and more individuals included in our tribe, mm-hmm. and therefore we treat them equally and well, um, then I imagine, to me, yeah, that's where rational humans will eventually get. Yeah, that there is a ultimate rational set but of morals. I would argue we're very tribal and in many ways well, we've I, become more tribal. I, through time, I, right? I'm, okay, so you're, to me, you're confusing my ideal with the reality. <laughs> I don't disagree with the reality, but I think ideally we would argue that's what we've always been trying to do as we move, as, as we progress. And there's, it's like a river, it generally flows in one way, but there's little rivulets that kind of, there's a period of time where it back pedals. But I think, you know, generally you don't agree that in I the, guess I'm an uber the march of relativist, time? maybe. So you're, so you're suggesting that it is, it is human nature to aspire towards morality. Oh, no. Uh, no. Well, I don't know about that. So then maybe we're not understanding I think, I think, I think it goes. Maybe it goes to this point of the rational thinking, right? right? If you, and this is my mindset, if you're a rational, empathetic human being, you would then say these are the ways we would treat individuals in our tribe, and everybody's in my tribe. Yeah. Of course, as a psychologist, I would tell you that that we're not rational. (laughs) But we are amazingly good rationalizing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so we've agreed to disagree. (laughs) But I think it's Uh, interesting. To clarify, uh, uh, psychologists would certainly tell you that we have the capacity to engage in rational thought. Mm -hmm. We tend not to. It's hard work. <laughs> yeah, it is work. Right, right. You've yeah. got to have the the will and the energy to do it. And mm-hmm. we're really good at cognitive dissonance as well, right? <laughs> we can hold two opposing ideas simultaneously. Well, if we only think of one. At the okay. Yeah. <laughs> but we can't. Like, we can essentially, you know, hold two. These. We are multitudes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. So let me read a couple of uh, quotes about how Darwin talks about morals and morality in in the text. So this is on page 135. Real quick quote. He says, a moral being is one who is capable of comparing his past and future actions or motives and of approving or disapproving of them. So what do you get out of that, Mark? He's he's starting to establish what a moral being is. And it seems to me that, and he comes back to this later, the moral being has to have consciousness and thought process and decisions. Mm Mm-hmm. And options and, and deciding on those options. Right. And that there's this, and uh, I think a lot of, of course, this is not my specialty area, but moral psychologists would certainly, I, I say certainly, would probably, uh, <laughs> but, but there's this affective component, right? It's this feeling of this is good or this is bad, mm-hmm. right? And, and actually, uh, you know, s- certain contemporary moral psychology theory would suggest that that's where our, our moral f- frameworks, uh, lenses, uh, are used to justify our affective response to something. Oh, so it's a post facto almost. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The tails wagging so, the dogs. Yeah. It's the rationalizing, right? Yeah. We, so we, we react to something affectively, viscerally, mm-hmm. as this is good or this is bad. And then we use 
whatever framework we have to justify yeah. our decision that it's good or bad. Gotcha. So let me read another quote. Uh, this is page 135, same page. But in the case of man, who alone can with certainty be ranked as a moral being, there we go, right. actions of a certain class can, are called moral, whether performed deliberately after a struggle with opposing motives or impulsively through instinct or from the effects of slowly gained habit. What do you guys think of that one? Having read the whole chapter, yeah. I find that a little bit interesting. Yeah, because he often, the other parts of the chapter, he explicitly says that it has to be a choice of doing something that is essentially selfless over something that is selfish. The ought generally. versus the, yeah. I ought to do this. Right. right. Why, why do you think he, uh, I mean, yes, he contradicts himself. Why do you think he's trying to make this distinction? Like, why can't an innate responsive knee-jerk reaction be moral because he wants it to be a human faculty because if you if you make the case that at any point that there are moral actions that can come without thought then any instinctive behavior even if the organism only exhibits those that potentially could be immoral well and i mean in a sense right this is also him trying following the same line of logic here um when you see altruistic acts in social organisms that are not humans, right? He's trying to say that that's not moral. Although he gives a series of examples throughout the text. Like the, my favorite one is the, I can't remember what kind of monkey it was that defended a zookeeper that was getting attacked by a baboon, even right. though this monkey was terrified of this And very baboon. tiny relative yeah. to the, yes, that yeah. was a very powerful story. Yeah. And yet, right. But that he would not, I mean, like in one sense he was, you know, he's trying to, it's, he has this tension, right? Because he's trying to make this argument that it's, he has to say that it's a continuum from other animal, other non-human animals, right? But at the same time, he's also trying to make humans different, special, right? right? And so he kind of keeps going back. Yeah, because he spends time uh, talking about, of course, sacrifices parents make for their offspring in terms of the animal kingdom, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, and in social groups, uh, you know, the male baboon, alpha male, if you want to use that term, right. or the dominant protecting male, the standing animal. back and letting, protecting the rest of them yeah. as they escape, right? right? Sacrificing itself to mm-hmm. protect the rest. Yeah, he points those out. And uh, now as we speak about that, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about them as being moral behaviors. Well, and, uh, I mean, just in general, like in, right. like even when Jack and I taught the psychology, I mean, mm-hmm. the moral class together, I don't think that ever came up. As, and which seems obvious. right, which it's kind of interesting too, because we'll identify it as being altruistic behavior, yes. mm-hmm. but that doesn't automatically equate as being moral. moral. Yeah, and, and then and then we'll sorry to cut you off. Well, no, I'm, I think we'll talk about it later because Darwin makes some arguments, especially in chapter five, about you know how could these kinds of behaviors evolve? Right, right. Um, so he's setting down to the reader, this is what I mean by moral without actually, as you just did, Mark, really defining that it's a set of rules, basically, Mm -hmm. agreed upon rules that we all do. But what's interesting about those agreed upon rules where the ought part comes in is that it's one of those, it's not always in my best interest to follow those rules, but it's in the best interest of the group Mm -hmm. that I follow those rules. And then then that's moral. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the moral part. And and yes, and that's what, you know, when he wants to make the case that... It, it is a decision. It, mm-hmm. It's it's a decision between two conflicting impulses: mm-hmm. the impulse for self benefit versus mm-hmm. the impulse for the benefit of the group. That that's what makes it a moral decision is when you choose the group over yourself, over right? Yourself, yeah. yeah. 
I don't know if it's worth reading the long-winded how Darwin says this, but also at the top of the chapter, he really kind of explains how he thinks that, because I think, again, what's new is not that morality exists, but how it could be a biologically mm-hmm. oriented um, um, trait. Tra- yes, yeah. thank you. Um, and so he really kind of lays it out as um, moral behavior could evolve through kind of four stages, I guess I would call it. So the first is that um, individuals get pleasure from helping individuals in their group, and he sees this as as an outgrowth of, as you said, James, of um, parental right sacrifice or those. So kinds we have of to be. A, do we have to be a social group first, right? Right. Um, yes. With mm-hmm. so he says, any animal endowed with well-marked social instincts, the parental and filial affections here being included, would inevitably acquire a moral sense or conscious by essentially taking pleasure in the society of their fellows, having sympathy for them, et cetera. Um, so I get pleasure from, you know, helping right. Mark and James. Um, <laughs> mostly. Move. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I get this, right? So I, you know, do something good and it makes me feel good. But then to really up it to being truly moral, you have to have an increase in mental faculties so that I can remember those those social interactions as being good Mm -hmm. or bad to reinforce those behaviors, essentially, right? Yeah. And that's required for the development. Right. So it's kind of four stages. So first is, hey, I... I exist in this social interaction and I, right. I get pleasure for it. Secondly, I develop mental faculties that allows me to remember those mm-hmm. interactions as being good or bad. Um, then we acquire language that allows us to express our social expectations. Okay. Which is mm-hmm. now going to reinforce how I feel about it. Right. And then That's finally how we make the code. Yes, yeah. exactly. Because and then I finally have- my habit reinf- reinforces that along with the community. And so this is again, coming back to his, I think we would argue has been kind of problematic with emotions is that he keeps talking about habit Mm -hmm. being part of the foundation of that. Well, I think it's because humans are really hard. I mean, they're difficult, right? We do a lot of uh, horizontal transfer Mm -hmm. and do a lot of imitation Mm -hmm. as one of our big traits and and learning. And so I, I, I can definitely understand why he keeps bringing that up. I agree with you that in the bigger picture, he gets confused sometimes about the sort of use and disuse of traits yeah. and, and how they come about. But when we talk about behavior in humans, it kind of fits, right? Because you learn and you react and you change your behavior. Mm-hmm. And so therefore you do acquire a new set of rules or you get ostracated or, or right. ostracized. Ostracized. Ostracated. Yeah. You get turned into a bone. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that word was. Um, all right, so you, you, basically is that like his algorithm? I think what's interesting about that, and the reason you noted my face there, was one of the things that's always been interesting is when researchers look at sort of these behaviors that humans do, say for punishment or for being um, altruistic, doing a nice thing, giving a donation or being generous to somebody else, um, there's always associated emotional mm-hmm. reactions to mm-hmm. it, you know. You know, you, you get do- dopamine buzz, or you, right. you get happy for feeling like I get to punish the cheater. Yeah, right. So, so there is that kind of feedback loop. But then mm-hmm. I was wondering, okay, one of the arguments for morality, moral, sorry, for moral kinds of rules, some of them, is that it is the cost to the inv- individual for the benefit of the group, mm-hmm. right? I wonder how much those cost benefits, like how costly can it be 
to get that buzz because you ultimately get a buzz of happiness to sort of train you to mm-hmm. still do this really bad thing. So I'm sorry, I was just thinking about that cost-benefit analysis of, and, and the boundaries of behaviors we're willing to do because what would evolve, right? How, how, if, if this has evolved, and so you've got these people, the, the self-sacrifice, you know, I'll mm-hmm. jump in front of and die for you is a unique behavior, but uh, you know, it's not everybody will do it. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, but even in the less extreme, you know, I think this is, again, where at least, again, listeners, those of you who listened to the last season, we got frustrated oftentimes in oftentimes in reading EEMA. Now that we finally come up with an acronym now that that season's over. I'm sticking with expression. (laughs) Okay, expression. Excuse me. But, yeah, I like Emma. We'll we'll go with Emma. Anyway, um, that... It was this field guide of emotions, but he mm-hmm. never really got down to like, well, why the hell do we have these emotions then? Right. And here he is laying yes. it out finally, right? He's right. saying like, okay, because then if I feel shame uh-huh. because I didn't do the moral behavior, that is going to reinforce this social cohesion, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it, it, he does get there, but he, I don't know, like to me, maybe this is Victorian writing, but like he doesn't like lay down no. like the smack, like this is exactly what I'm saying. Here. Yeah, it takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is, uh, yes, but I also think I was surprised at how comfortable and confident he was by basically saying at this point, we are just an evolved ape mm-hmm. and these behaviors that we do had to come from pre-existing mm-hmm. behaviors and you know, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. that yeah, I agree. It's still a long winded way, but that Darwin was number right, one yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one to be brief. Actually in, in this chapter, of course y'all have read much more Darwin than I have, but this was the first time I've read him explicitly say, and I'll read this sentence that starts this paragraph on page 151. Nevertheless, the difference in mind between man and the higher animals, great as it is, certainly is one of degree and not of kind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, that's as clear yes. as I've ever read him state that. Yes. Finally. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a lot of other things that I thought were interesting in, in this, uh, where he flirts with, um, I don't know if we want to go there right now, but maybe we will, just about his work with religion and how he kind of talks about it. I thought it was interesting that he would often use, like I have a, uh, a quote where he used the word gods mm-hmm. instead of, and often right. he would say gods with a yeah. plural. And mm-hmm. other. Like, and other, uh, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that I thought was really interesting. I don't know how the readers would react to that, but he never just referred to God. It was mm-hmm. always gods and others. Yeah. And, and, and somewhat, you know, um, placing it in almost the, the superstitious model or, or would connect it. He would say religion and superstition. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I thought that was um, more daring than I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was cause you know, at this point in his life, he is pretty much off the religious anything. Right. right, right. Um, so yes, I'm sure within the context of the, the time, this was pretty out there to mm-hmm. say that, but also it, you know, he's, there's still places where he talks about it where uh, he does use, I don't want to say it's a crutch, but he does use religion to as kind of the apex of mm-hmm. this kind of morality. Um, I'm just trying to look at um, one of my quotes here to see if any of them work for me, what I'm thinking right now. Well, one of the things that I was just thinking, page 151 in the summary of chapter four, he goes, the ennobling belief in God is not universal with man, and the belief in spiritual agencies naturally follows from other mental powers. 
The moral sense perhaps affords the best and highest distinction between man and the lower animals. Um, so I thought that's interesting. So he already disconnected morality with God right mm-hmm. there. All men are immoral, but not right. all men have God. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Which uh, we've ta- we were talking about right. before we recorded. That's, or no, earlier, yeah, that's one of the things that people will claim. Right. But he does, he does describe it as ennobling, ennobling belief in God. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but not everybody does that. <laughs> and I'm one of them, really is what he was true. saying. Exactly. <laughs> so chapter four, he uh, is really laying out, um, I think you said, Sarah, the sort of the algorithm for which morality comes about, clearly getting us to think that you, it's the social element of our identity that's important. And then there's that interesting element of memory, Right, mm-hmm. I guess, which, you know, uh, one of the classic uh, game theory arguments when we try to figure out sort of how humans should treat each other and, and those sorts of things, right? That, that's one of the elements that's really important is I have to remember how you yeah. treated me right. so that yeah. I can decide if I'm going to reciprocate. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, like all those prisoner dilemmas. Yeah. If you don't know who the... Yeah, then it falls apart. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the prisoner dilemma is that classic sort of paradox, not paradox, it's a game theory mm-hmm. idea, right? So Sarah and I both get arrested for stealing a, a painting from the museum, which we did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> exactly. But while we're being... We Coppers. Get, yeah. So they bring us back to the police department and they isolate us. That's important. And they put us in the interview room and they ask each one of us whether or not we were involved in this robbery, right? And then the idea is that if I rat on Sarah, then I get she'll get some time and I won't. And if she rats on me, I get some time in prison and she doesn't. But if we both stay silent, nobody nobody gets yeah. in trouble, right? Right. Um, and you so both rat. You both rat. We both go into right. the jail, but we don't know what the other person's going to do, right? And that's been the it's called the prisoner's dilemma because you don't know, you know, what's the best strategy. Of course, the best strategy is to sh- shut up, but yeah. Well, but uh, unless in, in, in the other person, yeah, unless yeah. yeah, if you trust your. Yes. Your partner. Right. So my understanding is that the, I mean, the explorations of, of Prisoner's Dilemma compare you get one shot versus right. multiple trials. Yeah. And then you learn very quickly with multiple trials, tit for tat is yeah. the yeah. strategy. Yeah. Right. Everybody cooperates until one person defects, then they win, but then that person gets punished. Right. And then. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the tit for tat. And then there's this more complicated one where you're allowed to reset it because you can get stuck in this sort of mm-hmm. flip flop back and forth. So right. there's a the, it goes to memory. There's a yeah. chance where you have to forget and you're willing to go back. And so the other thing about morality that many of the researchers have found is that um, the other kind of classic experiment that they they explore is the sort of common goods game mm-hmm. where if we all put money into a common bank and the bank makes some money then we all get paid out on on the interest of that mm-hmm. bank. But if you don't put any money in the bank, you'll still get the payout from the bank. And when they sort of try this cross-culturally all around the world and different even uh, sort of social groups, uh, even hunter-gatherers and, and, and uh, nomadic tribes, the initial pay-in, everybody plays. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as somebody defects, everybody defects and the whole thing falls apart. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me is that you... you you can almost always rely on people willing to throw money in mm-hmm. right. off the, off the, at the first time, mm-hmm. even though, and the cheaters are, obviously will prosper. But that initial movement is, to me, very powerful because it does show us mm-hmm. as a social animal, I will start off right. with cooperation. Right, right. And then, and then we'll see. 
<laughs> if, if the window opens where I can take advantage of this, some will. Yes. But, Someone yeah. always will. Yeah. And then the thing falls apart. Right. But, you, but you can prevent that by knowing right. you cheated. Yes. <laughs> right. exactly. And then you can really prevent it if you can start punishing. Then it really, you can really maintain yeah. uh, cooperation. <laughs> cooperation, yeah. end quote. Right. Which is funny because, you know, that's kind of what, that's what morals are, right? You, I, I, there's a set of rules mm-hmm. that we're all expected to follow and some break those rules right. and then you... And then you're going to face the social consequences if you do break them. Right. 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 Because, again, we have memories and I can remember that James screwed me over last time, so... Right. So I'm not going to st- rob the museum with him again. Yeah. <laughs> Once I get out of here. He's a tattletale. <laughs> Flips like a snitch. <laughs> snitches get stitches. <laughs> Anything else about um, chapter four uh, establishing, right? He's established, obviously, humans are moral. Mm-hmm. And that's not a question. And it comes about through our social behavior. I think the, the other part that I found was interesting was him sort of exploring this idea of non-human animals having regrets, mm-hmm. right? Um, he, he spent some time talking about swallows, and swallows are migratory birds, and they will um, travel from like Argentina up to California, but there's other swallows in Europe that do the same sort of thing, migrate down to Africa and then return to Europe, and they will begin the breeding season, um, and through the summer, they will go through multiple um, broods of, of babies, and then if the birds catch, find themselves at this point right before migration, uh, I mean, sorry, at the moment when they need to migrate back south, they just get up and leave. And, and Darwin was really bothered by this notion of two things. One, if, if you take those swallows and don't let them migrate, like put them in a cage, they will just bang themselves up and bloody their breast, pushing against the wired cage in the direction that they want to go, mm-hmm. just adamant on migrating. So he's like, this, this impulse to migrate is super powerful. Um, and they don't seem to be thinking about the offspring that they just left. Because when the time to migrate comes, regardless of where they are, the thing he didn't mention to you is that they've probably already reproduced once or right, twice. Exactly. This so this is, is like the bonus. The, yeah, these brood. are bonus yeah. broods. But, uh, but nonetheless, they just get up and leave. And the babies are in the nest waiting for mom and dad to come back. And yeah, and they just die. And, yeah. It's a real Home Alone situation. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, the dark version of Home Alone. <laughs> a little dried skeletal boy in the basement. <laughs> but, um, the, but the thing was, that I thought was interesting is he, he talks about regret. Like, he imagines, and this is such a weird little, right? He imagines yeah. the swallow like, ro- oh, arriving to Africa. Oh, wait a minute, I'm, where are the kids? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, yes. And are they sitting there sad that they abandoned the egg and nestlings? We laugh, but it is yeah, interesting thought process. Yeah. Like, uh, because he felt that that was a very, um, you know, I, I don't know what the point of that exploration was, except to talk about uh, opposing I mean, I guess because, yeah. So I think he would say if a sparrow were moral, it would have stayed and taken care of the babies. Right, it's right? best for because the group, right, yeah. not for itself. Right. So I think that's where he's kind of establishing oh, a that. moral sparrow <laughs> swallows. <laughs> right. Sorry. But, but um, if he speculates that they do experience regret. Well, yeah. Isn't that. Uh, yeah. Kind then, of a. Then they are more. That they have a sense of morality, right? Yeah. I don't know. No, no, no. Well. <laughs> um, I, I think we do have to deal with another and it will come up much more in the next chapter. But I think we do need to deal with the the, the Eurocentric um, 
Oh, that's a nice way to put it. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so Darwin kind of establishes there's these kind of two levels of um, social virtues um, or moral values. And so there's these basic level, um, what he calls social virtues. And these are things, again, within your group, don't do things like murder or rob. Um, do do things like self-sacrifice and have high endurance, right? And then those can kind of lead to what he calls self-regarding virtues, which are like harder to see the direct benefit to the group. So things he, he cites are things like prudence, temperance, and chastity. Um, and that he's, he's not a big fan of celibacy. No, he's not. Yeah, that, that comes with yeah, the next chapter. Um, and, and so he talks about the fact that, again, I'm going to use Darwin's words, so, quote, savages um, don't have those self-regarding virtues. So um, here's just a, one of the quotes. We, we don't have to go deep into this, but I do think we have to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, the greatest intemperance of, is of no reproach with savages. Utter licentiousness and unnatural crimes prevail to an astounding astounding extent as soon however as marriage whether polygamous or monogamous becomes common jealousy will lead to the inculcation of female virtue and thus being honored will tend to spread to the unmarried females and he continues on there to argue how it doesn't ever really spread to the males right um so yeah we have both the so you are arguing for the big m morality because you think it should go both ways no, I think no, no. I'm arguing that he's calling out the quote-unquote savages, and that mm-hmm. they can't, you know, like they can't reach the state that we Europeans have. Um, so there's there's a lot of mm-hmm. gender and oh, yeah. and ethnic, you know, yeah, margin or categories that right. he. Yeah, the word savage. I didn't even do a search there, but it's used. It's a all lot. Yeah, it's a in lot. these two cha- chapter, and I know it will only get worse yeah. in the next chapter we have after. <laughs> And he's he's still hating on the Fuegans. Yeah, he's still okay, to guys. He here's have, my here is my. He lose, did he lose some money in territory <laughs> or something? Like, well, here's my new hypothesis because so uh, those uh, listeners who were on season two with us, the the epic journey that never ended of the voyage of the beagle, <laughs> beagle that lasted almost as long as the voyage of the beagle. Um, will just recall, in recording time, not if you listen <laughs> right, to it. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll recall that. Um, you know, Darwin talks a lot about his discomfort with the way, you know, slavery is happening. Like, there, you know, again, there's sometimes he's kind of pro Fuegian, sometimes not. Um, but so here's my hypothesis: is how how old is Darwin at this point? With this point, yeah, sixty eight, uh, eighteen oh nine. So and this is seventy one. Okay, so yeah, sixty about sixty. Yeah. Okay, you know, people become, I mean, this is well established. People become more conservative (laughs) and less risk averse as they age, right? And so part of my hypothesis is this is kind of an old, angry man. And so like these things that he was maybe more open to as a younger man are becoming more like hard Mm. and, and, you know, and yeah, so that might be a part. And, And the fact that he's a wealthy white, Victorian male mm-hmm. um, also, but I just, I'm wondering how, because I do feel like there's, I would like to go back at some point when I have all the time in the world and really, <laughs> you know, look at how he writes about things like women and 
people of different backgrounds according to time, right? right? And yeah. see how it changes oh, time. over time from the public. Yeah. 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 Anyway. But he does point out, you know, um, one of the, the one places where he starts his, his group selection argument is on page 141. He says, no tribe could hold together if murder, robbery, treachery, etc. were common. Um, consequently, such crimes within the limits of the same tribe are branded with everlasting infamy, but excite no such sentiment beyond these limits. Um, he says, a North American Indian is well pleased with himself and is honored by others when he scalps a man of another tribe. And the Dayak, those are the natives of um, Borneo, the Dayaks cut off the heads of an unoffending person and dries it as a trophy, the headhunters of, <laughs> of the... So, yeah, he, he, to me, that's one of the ways he starts to set up this. He's recognizing that their behaviors are really not what he would consider the right behaviors. But within that group, mm-hmm. totally cool. That's good stuff. And, good, good head you got there on your front right. porch. But, but then there are also these... Um, social virtues rather than these esteemed self-regarding oh, virtues right. too because they're the s word <laughs> <laughs> well here's a question for you all right so you're the editor you're the most progressive editor in 1800s and you're like <laughs> <laughs> you're like darwin you keep using this word savages right i'm not really comfortable with it because i think readers will find it problematic in the future what, what, what word would he use instead because i you know i recently i was in a group and you know, the classic developed and developing, mm-hmm. not acceptable anymore um, because people find that problematic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting to me to think about language and what word would be an appropriate Well, I think it's substitute. interesting that he automatically feels the need to classify right. basically, um, you know, Europeans and then everybody else. And everybody else falls under savages for the most part. He likes Americans. Yeah, well, we, but they're... Because we got grit. Yeah. But of course, but we're also British. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, the, and, and we took the cream of the crop of all of Europe. Right, That's right. right. The most industrious. Oh, yeah, we know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he also points out that the British who went to Canada did much better than the French. Oh, yes. Right, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> Wait, but you haven't given me an answer. Instead of savages. Oh, what would he... Montreal's a fun town. Throw <laughs> <Still> that out <laughs> I guess that to me, it's the he felt the need to even categorize that there's this category that are savages, which is all these other people that right. are not Western, basically, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Besides his tendency to call out the Fuegians, savage is this kind of just uh, everything a broad brush. Yeah, yeah. Not European. Yeah. Not not us. Not so. Yeah. So you're right. It's uh, he, based on the examples he's given. It's people in Borneo mm-hmm. from. Wallace's work, and then it's people that he encountered in South America, yeah. and then it's people in North America, the Native Americans he that he's heard about, about. Hindus a yeah. lot, and then people in India because of yeah. the colonists. Right. Lots of indigenous folks, yeah, particularly you know when he's talking about Australia. I was going to say, yeah, America, he's talked about Aboriginals. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. all about yeah. indigenous folks. So yeah. that would be the word you would use then, the indigenous folk, perhaps instead although, of savages. Again, I don't know enough about sort of the the history and flow of people in India. But of course, when he talks about the Hindus, right? I mean, that's, you know, as we use it today, that's a religion. That's not a right. ethnicity necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure what he means, but I, yeah. I assume he just means people from the Indian subcontinent, right. but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, again, I don't know much about the history of the Indian subcontinent, but 
are they the indigenous folks? The first. Uh, oh, that, that's a fun question, isn't <laughs> yeah, <right>? it? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I, I agree. The, the, the word gets used a lot. And I think you're absolutely right, Sarah, that, that it's his way of saying non-British, yeah. non-European people yeah. who have. Um, so, but, you know, that, that, that earlier in that chapter, I thought it was interesting. He does hint that he is sympathetic to sort of the relativism yeah. of morality. Because mm-hmm. there's one of my favorite little uh, quotes I'm going to read here. It's a little bit long, but I hope you... Oh, yeah, this is it. So page two, and oh, that's why. It goes from page two to five. (laughs) Oh, that is a long one. Thankfully, I numbered them. No, it's not that long. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, buckle in, folks. All right, here A dramatic reading by James Wagner. (laughs) So this is on page 122, and he says, It may be well first to premise that I do not wish to maintain that any strictly social animal, if its intellectual faculties were to become as active and as highly developed as in man, would acquire exactly the same moral sense as ours. In the same manner as various animals have some sense of beauty, though they admire widely different objects, so they might have a sense of right and wrong, though led by it to follow widely different lines of conduct. If, for instance, to take an extreme case, men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, There can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers. And mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters. And no one would think of it interfering. Which is good. You know, so bees, uh, worker bees, uh, 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 honeybees, the the sisters are three quarters related Mm -hmm. to each other because of this haplodiploidy thing. Mm -hmm. They are only a quarter related to their brothers. So brothers are not that... And so they do, in fact, kill, if the number of males gets too high in a colony, the females will systematically kill them right. down to when you get to about a 25%. Not like they're counting. It's one of these ideas right. of, but yeah, so here's a, this is a really cool idea that he, at least there, acknowledges that, you know, there could be a different set of rules that make sense within that mm-hmm. system, and we would find them odd. Yeah. It's also saying that moral behavior is functional. Right. Oh, I didn't catch that. It serves this, it serves a purpose, right? If, if you know, if, if it serves us to kill our brothers, kill fertile daughters, it serves a function for the, in this case, the hive. Well, the funny thing is, he didn't know. I mean, that classic sociobiology, right, haploid, yeah. he was unaware of that at the time. I think yeah. they just thought it was odd. Right. Yeah. So yeah, he's really just, ba- just saying this is the behavior, and it mm-hmm. that's, this is the standard here. Oh, okay. oh, without like, yeah, knowing, yeah, so, not knowing the mechanism by yeah. which we now explain it, which then gets fuzzy because female queens can be multiply right. mated, and yeah. then the whole thing kind of our great falls story apart, falls yeah. apart by right. facts. So, <sighs> yeah, yeah. I hate that. <laughs> so he so just got lucky in this guess here, right? Well, it's a true behavior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty. And, so and, he's just saying because the baby. I mean, he's kind of saying because the behavior exists, it's the norm of the. Right of mm-hmm. that society, you know, and it could be the norm of our society, you know, yeah, it whatever. could be the norm. Nor- I mean, it's interesting right. in the sense that he's kind of saying that, but, but yeah, he's saying if we were raised under precisely the same conditions yeah. as I'd be. Yes. So it is something about the circumstance that demands this behavior. Right. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. He and doesn't so, know what it is, but right. there's something. Yeah. Oh, that's it, a, but it must be beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you yeah. think he's inferring that? 
I think, yeah, what mm-hmm. you said there, yeah. Well, and so. that's the, the bottom line, right? Because if it's going to evolve, it has to be beneficial. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. And that's where we're going to go into chapter five, because who is it beneficial to? To you, Mark, or yes. to the social group? <laughs> oh, no, yes, no, the social group. Yeah. <laughs> social Mark. So, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the Mark colony. So before we uh, take a break, um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch upon on chapter four um, that you thought we'd want to explore? I feel like some of the things that I have in chapter four still fit into chapter five. So if I'm just yeah. dying to talk about it, I'll bring it in. Is that, is that cool with five. you? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. One thing I took away from chapter four is that I will start using ambersand C. As oh, yeah. Et cetera. Because it's et cetera. way classier. Oh, it is. <laughs> and he uses it a lot, actually, yeah, in his other yeah. writings. It was yeah. one of his popular things, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> And and it's, and it's almost like that, like Seinfeld, where you know yada yada yada, because yeah. yeah. <laughs> he does use it a lot in yeah. words and where he and yada yada yada. I killed my sister. <laughs> but since you're a honeybee, it's all good. All right, well, let's take a break, and when we return, we'll pick up chapter five. You're listening to Discovering Darwin. Welcome back. You are listening to Discovering Darwin. Today we are talking about morality, possibly with a big M, uh, still to be determined. <laughs> uh, but we are now moving on to uh, chapter five and hold on to your butts, friends, because uh, this chapter is entitled On the Development of the Intellectual and Moral Faculties During Primeval and Civilized Times. And that sounds much better than what we will get into. <laughs> <laughs> this, was, this was rough. Yeah. <laughs> this was rough. All right. So one of the things that I think that I'd like to explore for a little bit, and then it'll transition to the rough part that Mark just <laughs> kind of mumbled about, is that in this, this chapter, and Darwin starts it in chapter four. We didn't actually talk about it, but he sort of flirts with it there, but then he really brings it home here, is he's trying to make an argument about how morals would evolve in mm-hmm. individuals. In, in, and you can understand the, the tension here. If, if we're talking about a behavior that doesn't benefit the individual but benefits the group, how does one then get that trait develop? And he has this uh, quote on page 155 where he tries to come up with a model to explain it. And he says this, When two tribes of primeval man living in the same country came into competition, if other circumstances being equal... The one tribe included a great number of courageous, sympathetic, and faithful members who were always ready to warn each other of danger and to aid and defend each other. This tribe would succeed better and conquer the other. Which I think logically makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a coherent group that are willing to sacrifice for each other and mm-hmm. charge forward. They should do better than those groups that have people who don't watch the back of their colleagues. Right. Yeah, but and it, I think even, and then he even continues on and the same paragraph to say selfish and contentious people will not cohere thus the social and moral qualities would tend to slowly advance and be diffused throughout the world there we go 
But the thing is, though, too, just sort of as I, um, and this is just a thought that just occurred to me. It's a fresh thought. It's a fresh thought. Is Hot that take. You can have those qualities and it still not be a moral group that would then still succeed better and conquer the other. Wait, how, so? how, 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 yeah. So if we, you know, that, that kind of cohesion and faithfulness and courage and sympathy for, the, for your group, you know, Germany took over a large part oh, of see, Now you're going to Big M. See, <laughs> yeah. he, he's going to Big M. <laughs> I'm going to add a big O. And add <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Is that, that's just the thing that just occurred to me. At this no, moment. no, explain. Well, would we then want to say that fascism is moral? <laughs> See, uh-huh, Sarah. Uh, so he, in this sense, you know, it's, he's in equating Germany it was. morality with That's success. exactly right, right? right? And that's what I'm saying. There's no big M. Cause... No, there is a big M because we look at it and go, that's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> we do now. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. we did then. Some did. Some of us. <laughs> Lots did, actually. Yeah, well, that's why we went to war. Sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, right, right, right. But they were Actually, that's not why we went to war. We went to war because they took land. Right. And then later we realized what they were doing. I go, oh, that's right. really yeah. bad. Yes. <laughs> Torpedoing our yeah. commercial. Yeah. Commercial, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was really for really petty reasons. But right. let's just <laughs> keep the narrative that we're the good guys. Okay, right. I like that. Well, okay, so I'll build on this of, of why. So James' original quote about, hey, these two tribes and, you know, they're mm-hmm. well-bonded. Um, actually, a little bit earlier in the, uh, just a couple paragraphs before that, um, he, Darwin talks about, he says, the habitual practice of each new art must likewise in some slight degree strengthen the intellect. If the new invention were a important one, the tribe would increase in number, spread, and supplant other tribes. In a tribe thus rendered more numerous, there would always be a rather greater chance of the birth of other superior and inventive members. If such men left children to inherit their mental superiority, the chance of birth of, of still more ingenious members would be somewhat better, and in a very small tribe, decidedly better. Even if they left no children, the tribe would still include their blood relations, and it has been ascertained by agriculturalists that by preserving and breeding from the family of an animal, which was then slaughtered, has been found to be valuable the desired character has been obtained. So we're adding on a little bit. So mm-hmm. I think when James first talked about it, it was a purely kind of group selection. This group will do better than the other. Um, this is adding on an idea of kin selection, but it's uniting mm-hmm. it with some other positive value. So if as a group, I'm more cohesive and I'm going to teach you this really cool new trick, Mark, because mm-hmm. you and I are buds. Yeah, we are. Then, then we will displace this other group. Right? Okay. But also that, you, Sarah, don't have children. But I your don't. Sister, that's true. <laughs> and, I am all about kin selection. This is right. my way in the world. But your sister does. In this crowd, only 33% of us have children. But I've got enough for all and of he's you. Made a, exactly. <laughs> I only have three, so it's really not enough for all of you. But, oh, but one on, of you get on, to claim on, one. On right? average, we each have one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but Sarah, the, you're right. That's one of the uh, interesting points here that uh, Darwin is still no idea of genetics. Right. Right. But he's saying, hey, closely related individuals share traits, mm-hmm. even yeah. if they don't express those traits. Yeah. That's the trick. Right. So, so, what do you, what do you, so we, this group selection argument, I think, um, sits well in our head. It makes logical sense, mm-hmm. right? And um, it seems like that, that would be a, a very legitimate way to imagine small human social groups developing and, and winning out against other small social groups, right? So that... What I think is interesting, then, Darwin, w- within that same page, 
then turns around, and this is why I, you know, we all love Darwin. This is why we do, because he turns around and says, okay, I got you to believe that, but now here's the problem with my idea. <laughs> he says, but it may be asked, how within the limits of the same tribe did a large number of members first become endowed with these social and moral qualities? And how was the standard of excellence raised? It is extremely doubtful whether the offspring of the more sympathetic and benevolent parents or of those who were the most faithful to their comrades would be reared in greater numbers than the children of selfish and treacherous parents belonging to the same tribe. He who was ready to sacrifice his life, as many a savage has been, rather than betray his comrades, would often leave no offspring to inherit his noble nature. The bravest men who were always willing to come to the front in war and who freely risked their lives for others would on average perish in larger numbers than other men. Therefore, it hardly seems probable that the number of men gifted with such virtues or that the standard of their excellence could be increased through natural selection, that is, by the survival of the fittest. For we are not here speaking of one tribe being victorious over another. Right? So there... I, I think it's really interesting, right? He, he clearly identifies the weakness of his right. argument. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then... So how do we get this? Yeah, so yeah, that was... Uh, I throw the ball <laughs> to you guys. Because <laughs> Darwin himself doesn't actually say, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. He, he sees it as a real problem. Right, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think he really resolves it, except then he sort of just circles back around again to the concepts of kin and group selection again, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, but he goes on later actually to talk about too that, so those folks that do put themselves at risk for mm -hmm. the sake of the, the group, the, the group uh, those that do make it though, mm -hmm. reap big benefits, yes. right? So they, they're, they're bestowed with resources mm -hmm. and attention and high regard. But I guess the, the problem is of course, from this purely biological perspective is, does that mean that they are more likely to have offspring, mm -hmm. right. right? To pass yeah. on those traits. Yeah. This is where Darwin starts to argue then, oh, but these social emotions then help to reinforce this potential group selection mm -hmm. or, um, or uh, kin selection. It says, but another and more powerful stimulus to the development of the social virtues is afforded by the praise and the blame of our fellow men. <laughs> to do good unto others, to do unto others as ye would, what? <laughs> <laughs> I pulled this directly from there, so. Okay, to, to do good unto others, to do unto other as ye would they should do unto you is the foundation stone of morality. It is, therefore, hardly possible to exaggerate the importance during the love of praise and the dread of blame. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, again, this is kind of coming back to the um, approbation and disapprobation. <laughs> yes. That's your job description. Getting a letter from yeah. Dr. Bray. <laughs> so he's, he's basically arguing, okay, yeah, I've got this group selection argument, but cheaters prosper and they can corrupt the system. Mm -hmm. And I see that. I recognize that, you know, there's a huge sacrifice for being willing to give up your life for the group. Um, and those who don't might have a higher fitness. So to keep them in check, I'm going to go back and punish them. Right. And or make mm -hmm. them feel guilty. And I'm going to remember. And remember. Mm -hmm. Right. Going back to the last chapter. Mm -hmm. Right, 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 right. And so th that becomes that sort of, um, I, we've got 
the group selection pushing one group beating out other groups and then within that group individual selection picking and choosing who gets to be part of the group because one of the biggest punishments of a human being yeah. is to, to be, be kicked out of this yeah. yeah to be shunned to be right. kicked out of the social group well absolutely yeah yeah well, and, and he also invokes reciprocal altruism, too, in this, mm -hmm. um, although he doesn't, I mean, he brings it up, but he pretty quickly sets it aside. Um, so this is the idea that I remember that James did something nice for me. So when I get the opportunity, I'm also going to do something mm -hmm. nice towards James. So, and that requires memory. and Exactly. Exactly. So he, he starts to set up this argument of, um, and I think he still leans on group selection, mm -hmm. generating the moralities, uh, the better behaviors of, mm -hmm. of, of, of humans. And then, then I think it's where it takes a dark turn <laughs> is obviously, and, and here's what I'm intrigued by, I guess intellectually or what happened was he publishes Origin of Species, you know, 1859, where like 22 years later, or mm -hmm. is that right? 17 years later? 22. Like, math's hard. <laughs> Somewhere between 17 and 20 years. Yeah. Nonetheless, we're in 1870s yeah. and it was 1859. So let's just say 20 years. <laughs> um, give or take. <laughs> but other people have taken, who've taken, other people have taken his ideas of evolution by natural really selection. <laughs> it is good. <laughs> Damn you, Mark. <laughs> Sorry, listener. Yeah. Um, at least I'm not slurring you. <laughs> We're there. But my point is, is that he then writes about Galton mm -hmm. and um, other writers who are now trying to take his ideas and then say, oh, hey, Darwin, here's the problem. The best of, the, of society are not reproducing right. the, at the highest rate and the, the worst of society are, mm -hmm. right? And so it's clear that, that those ideas and, and sentiments, Spencer, the famous one, Herbert right. Spencer, uh, generates this idea of social Darwinism, right, Mark? Right, right, right. And and also, I mean, that that notion of sort of inferior, I'm using air quotes here, inferior folks being particularly fertile and reproducing more, it, that idea continues for a while, right? We, we look at, you know... Uh, oh, it did! <laughs> Dang it! Okay, sorry. <laughs> I listen, I just moved everything so he would avoid hitting it. And I think I made it worse for him. But I did so well in the first time. I know, I should have left it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I talk about this in the history of psychology. You know, you look at, I mean, even turn of the, turn of the century, 19th century, I mean, I'm sorry, 20, early 20th century um, ideas with this increased immigration into the United States, particularly from uh, folks from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, there was this concern that that a high proportion of the folks coming in were, and I'm going to use an air quotes here because the term they used was uh, feeble-minded. Mm -hmm. And one of the... Because uh, <laughs> they had made them take a test? That, yes. Oh, oh God. In English, right? Don't get me started, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, among the properties or consequences of feeble-mindedness, in addition to uh, tendency to alcoholism and crime, uh, were two things. One is sexually promiscuous and very fertile, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so this concern was this is this is what's coming into the American gene pool, and they're going to take over, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, because of these things. And so, what we're going to this is this is the ultimate degradation of our of our culture. And so, I think Stephen King, uh, the the uh, congressman from. Iowa has said similar things yeah, within yeah. the last couple of years. So again, clearly not an idea that has completely disappeared. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and so you know you can look at the sort of the dark parts of the history of the field of psychology, right? Um, there was oh, I I knew I was going to blank on this guy's name. <laughs> uh, very famous for um, basically bringing over the Binet Simon intelligence test, which was in. Intended and designed to help identify French school children who might benefit from special education, yeah. translated to English and, and decided to use that to identify feeble-minded folks. Um, and so, and he got government approval to to do this. And so, he and his cohorts set up at Ellis Island as immigrants were coming through and picking out folks and initially starting to give them the test to identify who was feeble-minded, but then eventually deciding that they could kind of tell by the way someone looked whether or not someone was feeble-minded. Uh, there you just, go. And just picking yeah. them out. And of course... I know I'm going to see them. Yeah. yeah. And as a consequence, sending folks back, right? Breaking up families, right? Okay, the, you, the mom and the daughter also, can stay, but the dad and the other daughter have to go back. <laughs> yeah, we've had that still yeah. going on. So there was writers who, who basically said, okay, Darwin, if you're right, if um, natural selection is it, all about fitness and reproduction who's reproducing and let's look at our society and and even darwin in this in in his uh starts to reflect on other kinds of things like medical intervention so on page mm-hmm. 159 he yeah. says there is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who from a weak constitution would formerly have succumbed to smallpox right so you know you, you hear those arguments too so are we by uh, you know through medical interventions or vaccinations or whatever are we helping maintain weaker gene pool, right? Right. Weaker individuals that are contributing to the de- degradation. That's the kind of mindset right. here, right? Degradation of this trajectory, right? We're supposed to be going on this moral trajectory to the big M, the capital M. And these people are pulling us back. Right. But and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, here's my experience with this chapter. And we talked about this a little <laughs> bit before we started is that I'm just full of so much conflict because he talks about these awful things and then says these really kind of progressive things at the same time. And, you know, concerning something like that, it's like it, he's he's arguing or describing it in the context of it's it's a there's this conflict and the social impulse is wins in this case. That's why we do these things mm-hmm. to right. help along yep. those that are uh, less able, less able, suffering, whatever, even though that then perpetuates within our collective, right, those, uh, those particularly uh, disadvantaged traits. Which, of course, again, the assumption here is that those people are in those positions because of genetic, quote-unquote, right, inferiority, right. rather than right, they've right. had no access to the same. Exactly. I, but, but he's also said in the previous chapter that, that when it comes to you know, that conflict of interest, mm-hmm. that choosing the social is right. the moral choice. That's right. Yeah. And that's and, and is emblematic of, of us as humans what makes us special (laughs) well and uh, so again talking about how you know sometimes he seems to say things that we would consider today to be relatively relatively progressive right Mm -hmm. um versus at one point he's talking about you know wealth and he says man accumulates property and bequeaths it to his children so that the children of the rich have an advantage over the poor in the race for success independently of bodily or mental superiority so in that one brief moment he does kind of recognize it but then he immediately undoes it. <laughs> he says, right. on the other hand, the children of parents who are short-lived and therefore ha- on average 
therefore, on an average deficit of health and vigor, come into their property sooner than other children and will likely marry earlier and leave a larger number of offspring to inherit their inferior conditions. Can I just... Yes, please. uh, What page are we on? Page 160 at the very bottom, he says, no doubt wealth, when very great, tends to convert men into useless drones, (laughs) but their number is never large, and some degree of elimination here occurs, for we daily see rich men who happen to be fools or profligate squandering away their wealth. And then goes on to say, primogeniture which is the passing on of uh, an estate and wealth right through, through the firstborn uh, with entailed estates uh, is a more direct evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though it may formerly have been a great advantage by, this, by the creation of a uh, dominant class and any government is better than none. Yeah, he always says that. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's the thing but I thought. But he calls it out as evil. Yeah. 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 Anyway, sorry. No, no, no. You're yeah. good. I think. I think what's interesting to me about this. Uh, this is a classic argument. We've all heard it, right? Uh, the social Darwinism argument that you know it's the poor people who are reproducing more, and the the people who are contributing great things to society. You know, I'm not going to say Elon Musk because I don't believe that. But you, you know, they would look at somebody like that and they go, "Oh, look, they he's have, had a lot of kids, though." Has he? How many yes. kids? Uh, I don't know, like four or so, oh, five. That's a lot. Listen to her. <laughs> Com- compared to the standard. Yeah, that's you true. Know. But, but yes. But, but, but the funny thing is that Darwin here, I found interesting. He never says that the poor individuals, the ones that do not have access to resources and or, you know, they're economically, in a, uh, that he didn't say they're immoral. He doesn't actually talk about their morality. And I think it's interesting that you, the, 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 the game that he's playing here is that we assume that the poor people are less moral than the rich people. And therefore they're going to contribute less to, they're going to pull away this idea of we're evolving morality. But he, I, but I don't think that's what the argument is. It's not that they're less moral well, here. I think can we, can we the implicit can we to me, the, the, the quote that he yeah, offers uh, about the Irish. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. The careless, squalid, unaspiring Irishman multiplies like rabbits. Okay. That's right. Not like a Scots. The frugal, for, <laughs> I know. frugal, foreseeing, self-respecting, ambitious Scot, stern in his morality, spiritual in his faith, sagacious and disciplined in his intelligence, passes his best years in struggle and in celibacy, marries late, and leaves few behind him. Was that also just a general, like, we hate Roman Catholics things too, because well. like most of the Scots became Protestants except for the far like Highlanders. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and all the, but, but the Irish would... were Catholic. And to be clear, that was, cause they're a... all Celts too. I'm, I don't know. This is where I'm just like, what? And that was not a quote from him. He was quoting, uh, yeah, someone, quoting else. someone else, uh, yeah. Mr. Greg, right. Mr. Yeah. Greg Which and Galton are the totally two big ones. Pseudonym. Yeah. But so he, he, I thought it's weird, right? He, this is classic Darwin. Hey, I'm, I'm totally confident enough to bring out criticisms. Mm-hmm. And here's a criticism of my model, is that uh, these people are saying, oh, the poor, the less abled. And it's interesting. He doesn't actually say that they, you know, he, he implies that they are themselves uh, deficient in qualities. Yeah. But he, like you said, Sarah, he also recognizes, oh, it may be just the bad luck of right. the draw. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't mar- get born into a rich family, got born in. But he never actually clearly says, with these people at the lower economic standard, they are less moral. 
Yeah, right. I don't. I, yeah, yeah, I don't think that's that. I think he's making an argument that morality is could lead to, you know, at that kind of group selection level. Now we have a bunch of unfit, quote unquote, people in the population. I don't think he's saying that the people who are that he calls unfit in the sense are less moral. They're just there's other reasons, and now we keep them in the population because we're such moral beings. Oh, I see. I, that's what I thought his right. argument yeah. was. The, the, again, the overriding impulse is the social so, right. motive. Yeah. Right. That, so I'm going to create poor houses and right. not poor houses were so a great thing. Do, do things to help the weakest. Yeah. Oh, so that then. So they don't, they're not cold from the herd then. Right. So the, so then what is the measurement of the, uh, the, the, the drain that they're supposed to be causing on? Because they're less fit in other ways. Right. All right. And they're still staying in the in the population. So that that's the that's the problem with morality, right? Oh, because right. of the fact they're keeping oh. right all these other individuals in the population. And so, uh, for his group selection thing, right, would mean right. that like a more moral group is keeping the unfit around, right. whereas a less moral group, everybody's just out for themselves. And so the the fittest overall hmm. are going to rise to the top. So, so that's interesting. I mean, it's, that's beautifully said because yeah. it makes you realize. Okay, so the criticism. So that actually make, makes you f- should make you feel proud, right? Instead of if there's a big M, moral. <laughs> <laughs> Which there is. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm big M moral. <laughs> <laughs> so so okay so we've got this idea that uh he's starting to throw out these criticisms of his model uh is there any others that you guys want to talk about on chapter five what you you the progressiveness of darwin you want to talk about that or well okay so one i will uh so one was the fact that he was kind of recognizing that wealth itself could could be corrupting yeah corrupting harmful like that could allow for the less fit to stay in just because they happen to be born into the families with money um and there was an interesting thing where he talked about um oh but we can take care of this because every now and then an enterprising young man is going to go get himself an heiress (laughs) so it's all good (laughs) um So uh, anything else that you guys want to hit on chapter five? I mean, you guys, Mark, you started off this by saying that you were uncomfortable with some of the language, right? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this, but this is not unusual. uh, (laughs) Yeah. But it's, but it's, it's, it's really concentrated in this chapter. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, just, just wait. Yeah. But here's, uh, I, I think there's, a, so the one thing I, I don't know that we've actually touched on that I do want to talk about is that he seems to be taking a position that it comes back to James big, big M, which is that there is this idea of progress in, right. in civilization mm-hmm. and society um, that, that he, uh, you know, talks about and such to the point where, <laughs> This is, I can't decide how I feel about this, actually, is that he kind of makes, I'll say, excuses for certain um, groups of people that, oh, they just can't reach our level of civilization and progress because their environment is so brutal, which was, which in some ways an interesting mm. relativism. So this is when he's talking about... Um, the Eskimos? The Eskimo. The, I love the way it's spelled. Um that you know they're super ingenious they've come up with all these things but do their harsh environment they can't have these things mm-hmm. he also equates you can only like be truly you know progress and and be civilization if you have agriculture 
Right. Oh. Right. Um, and, yeah. and then, then you can't he can't be a nomad. Yeah. No, that, yeah, you're not going to reach the, right. the, the upper echelons. Um, and, but the other thing I thought, so then that, so that's one that things progress, but do we also then regress? And, and I think that's this whole conversation, most of the conversation that we've been having, but he talks about the Romans and the Greeks and how those great civilizations mm-hmm. did fall apart. And right. I think there's that sense of fear that my, my understanding, and I could be completely wrong about Victorians is that there was this kind of great fear of the collapse of, of morality. And, sure. and, and well, we're going through that now. Right. I mean, as, as you yourself, <laughs> yes, me personally, for sure. <laughs> but you know, I mean, as a, as a, as, as a culture, as a, U.S. Right. culture, right? Yeah. There's this concern that that this 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 divide is ultimately our undoing. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and and that the um, the the Greeks, he he points out that they, they were the smartest of the smart. Right. Mm-hmm. And he he does say, I have a quote here that, uh, which I think is also really an important one because most people think about a natural selection in this process of evolution, perfecting things, right? Mm-hmm. And this is one of the times where he starts to acknowledge trade-offs, that you can't perfect everything. Because he says about the Greeks, natural selection acts only tentatively. Individuals and races may have acquired certain indisputable advantages and yet have perished from failing in other characters. The Greeks may have retrograded from a want of coherence between the many small states, from the small size of their whole country, from the practice of slavery or from extreme sensuality, for they did not succumb until they were enervated and corrupt to the very core. Sorry. Right. Enervated. That's a weird word. It is a weird word. But his point is, is that when we think about the Greeks, we tend to think of them super smart. They came Mm -hmm. up with Greek laws and Greek philosophy, and yet they themselves failed. Mm -hmm. And it was because other traits that he thinks might have, it goes to your point, Sarah, that maybe they were too sensuous right yes which i mean you know and and the romans went through this too right like during um augustus right he they put all these kind of morality laws out there because they were worried about and think about it it was because they were coming into contact with other you know they're conquering other peoples and they're worried again about this like watering down of 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 their society the other thing that i think is kind of interesting that that darwin plays with a lot and i don't think he understands what I don't think he, yeah, he, he doesn't know where he stands on it is this idea of vertical versus horizontal mm-hmm. transfer of things like these values. And cause even in that paragraph with the Greeks, he talks about, well, we as Western men have inherited so much from them by reading their things, but they have not contributed to us genetically. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this sense too, then, okay, well, when two tribes come into combat, um, sorry, no, I'm doing it um, <laughs> to, uh, you know, do I just conquer and therefore whatever is in my, my group um, is there because of this vertical transmission I mean, or is it because like, you now have adopted my, mm-hmm. um, the replacement versus assimilation right, kind of exactly, idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is interesting because he, he recognizes one of the things that he's trying to parse out here because I, I wasn't aware of this, but I guess there's writers who, who made the argument, you know what humans, 
were born perfect and moral. And Mm. and these different savages, right, the different groups around the world are a degradation from the pure Mm -hmm. to a lesser standard. And Darwin is trying to make the argument it's the inverse of that. Right. But yeah. th- that's a very Christian perspective. Yeah. You yes. know, that if we start with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that is the embodiment of perfection. And it's only as a consequence of sin that we then degrade. Right. Yeah. I, and I do think it's, again, interesting because in this fact, Victorian era, there is this whole like kind of moral hysteria or moral fear um, that we are degrading and this is actually from the previous chapter but he says looking to future generations there is no cause to fear that the social instincts will grow weaker and we may expect that virtuous habits will grow stronger perhaps becoming fixed by inheritance in this case the struggle between our higher and lower impulses will be less severe and virtue will be triumphant morality with a capital m (laughs) (laughs) so we're getting out of this that on chapter Five, he starts off with a, a group selection argument for the evolution of morality mm-hmm. and that the criticisms of it are that cheaters prosper, but strong rules and, and punishment will keep that from taking over. And then uh, your point, I think, Sarah, is really interesting, that one of the qualities of a moral society is that you end up with a lot of less what you would call Darwinian fit individuals prospering Mm -hmm. because that's what you get if you're a moral society. He never actually criticizes that view or anything. He just kind of lays it out. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because as you pointed out, Sarah, I hadn't thought of it that way as it's, it's one of the benefit what you could call if you're progressive and you, you'd say it's a benefit. Others would say it's a, Mm -hmm. a, a deficit, but he never actually gets on either side of the fence on that. He just basically says, this is what critics say. Well, I do think he tries to counter the idea that, you know, because this is where he brings in other things. Why? Well, you know, the, the I'll marry an heiress and there'll be other reasons why, you know. Oh, there's a quote in here and I, I'm not going to be able to find it now. But he's like, you know, the we ends up ex- executing a lot of people because they do bad things. And we like, we take them out. Oh in other yeah. Ways, he talks about, right? the, you know, he talks about, right. The crusades and, and the, yeah. and the, the Catholic church killing many, many good people. Yeah. Right. People. Hit well, the, I think that was his though argument about uh, civilizations falling apart. Yeah. Um, but he talks about how unmarried men have, lower like they don't live as long mm-hmm. right so i think he like he's kind of making this argument well they get taken out in other ways i actually think is what his you know this is here's a quote, quote that i love if you made me think of it this is on page 167 he says during the same period the holy inquisition selected with extreme care mm-hmm. the freest and boldest right. men in order to burn or imprison them in spain alone some of the best men those who doubted and questioned and without doubting, there can be no progress. We're eliminated during three centuries at a rate of a thousand a year. The evil which the Catholic Church has thus affected is incalculable, though no doubt counterbalanced to a certain, perhaps to a large extent, in other ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were good other I mean, that was a weird kind of... Well, like, and I, but I think that's his whole, like, the, the moral panic, right, that's civilization will fall apart. Um, So this is, uh, he's referring to a Dr. Stark. I don't know who that is. Um, He admits, however, that the intemperate profligate and criminal classes whose duration of life is slow is low, do not commonly marry. And it must likewise be admitted that men with a weak constitution, ill health, or 
any great infirmity of body or mind will often not wish to marry or will be rejected. Um, and so I think, and he kind of goes on with, with more and, you know, so I think he's saying like, oh, well, yeah, we try to help each other out, but other things weed these people out so mm -hmm. that they're not contributing to the gene pool. So the, the mate choice will keep them from. Yeah, that might be ultimately. And their shorter lifespan. And the shorter right. lifespan. Right. Exactly. So he, he totally does not agree with the view that we start off good and then some groups degraded, right? And he does make the argument that all civilizations, it was, it was a really weird argument. He tries to make the argument that around the world, there's evidence that everybody was barbarous, right? They're a very right. primitive view. And he uses flint as a, t you know, using flint tools. Mm -hmm. He points out that there's all these areas around the world where there's, you know, fossil evidence or archeological evidence of flint use and flint tool use in which nobody in that area knows how to make flint tools, right? So they've lost the ability to make these tools, right. but they have evidence that those tools used to be there. And, and everybody I, discovered it on their own. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they all discovered it. Yeah. And so he is on the, on the side of the fence of, look, humans all have evolved from a very uh, barbaric, he would call mm -hmm. it, instead of savage, mm -hmm. barbaric. Well, I think for him, barbaric is one level below savage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, like you do. I think there's the, you're a, bar, you're a barbarian, then you're a savage, then you're a civilized European. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, was, he, he definitely yeah. believes we all came from that, right? And then um, what else? Anything else from this chapter before we... I, I, I want to end with a, the, the end quote, but is there any other big... I don't know if it's a big thing, but it's one thing that's kind of struck me, and it's right at the beginning of chapter five, where he, he argues or, or suggests that um, because of human intelligence, we don't change physically mm. as much. We, 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 we adapt our environments, right? For man is enabled through his mental faculties to keep an unchanged body in harmony with the changing universe. Uh, but the lower animals on the other hand must have their bodily structure modified in order to survive under greatly changed conditions. So what do you get out of that? Uh, well, one is that he's suggesting that our form has stopped evolving. Right? We're, we're no longer changing because we change our environments to fit right. us. Um, which is a classic I, argument, right? Yeah. Because we got clothes. Well, you, you know, can Sarah is, with her new glasses. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a psychologist. So this is new to me, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was a two, but I've forgotten what the two is. Oh, 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 that's that's right. So, and that our adaptation is mental adaptation. Mm. It's an adaptation of habit, right? He says in that second sentence, right? Uh, he has great power of adapting his habits to new conditions of life. And, and that's always been the, the, you know, the classic kind of thought experiment. If we took a Neanderthal mm -hmm. and brought them to the mm -hmm. modern world and raised them, would their brain be able to adapt and accept all of our you know, social norms and just fit in and look like a bulky guy in a business suit right. versus is their mental capabilities or their mental processes so alien to what we are? Yeah. And that goes to the point of the, how plastic is our brain, right? right. Like... You know, I, I can't imagine anybody would argue that somebody born in 1800s, if they were teleported to today, would easily adapt to mm -hmm. our mind, you know, our, our society, right? Yeah. They'd be susceptible to diseases. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But in terms of... of, sort yeah, of the common cold could be yeah, lethal. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, but in terms of sort of that kind of psychological adaptation, absolutely. 
So how far back do you think the well, mental capabilities? Depending on their age. You know, that's, and you kind yeah. of pointed this out earlier as Darwin's becoming kind of prickly and grumpy oh, and conservative. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That plasticity, it, it drops off, right? Um, <laughs> oh, for sure. I'm yeah, not, learning, like, I'm not ba- learning a language now. Yeah, yeah. I know. I was like, what are we, wait, are we talking about like a frozen embryo yeah. that I'm bringing from the 1800s or a, right, you know, 40 right. year old man? Right. Well, yeah, 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 those are different yeah. things. Yeah. You know, something like, uh, you know, a hemispherectomy, right? You can, you can do oh. that kind of operation with a child and they'll be. They'll adapt pretty well, but wait, if wait, you wait, and I to have that, to, like cutting take, the take out, out take out a hemisphere, yeah. whole friggin' hemisphere. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. He says that. Like, oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. No like half your brain. Oh, it's not real common, but uh, <laughs> but but it's 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 sometimes a necessary. And, and again, you can do this with a child, and they will actually remarkably recover. They'll be walking out of that hospital. But how, in, what about the whole week. left right brain vision processing plasticity? Man, we're much more plastic when we're children. Uh, but that, but by the time we finish adolescence, the plasticity is really at its, you've used it up. It's set. A lot of plastic has set. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Which is why, you know, post puberty, you don't really learn language as well or math. No. Yeah. There's a, there's a window. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so wait, where, where the hell? How did we get here? You, you just threw out, was there anything <laughs> else that you wanted? And I'm like, I, I kind of wanted to do that. But of course, that's my, the, the right. novice uh, uh, in me speaking. <laughs> We're all novices here. Yeah. All right, um, Sarah, are you good? Yeah. yeah. I want to end with the last uh, quote of this chapter, only because I was, it, it resonated with me in that Darwin having sort of walked us around and trying to explain that humans have this sort of arc of, of, of history and that he does believe we are getting better and that there is a, a, an arc of, 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 to the big M, <laughs> capital M, uh, whether or not that's true or not. But he ends the, this uh, chapter with this quote that I'd like to read. To believe that man was aboriginally civilized and then suffered utter degradation in so many regions is to take a pitiably low view of human nature. It is apparently a truer and more cheerful view that progress has been much more general than retrogression. That man has risen through by slow and interrupted steps from a lowly condition to the highest standard as yet attained by him in knowledge, morals, and religion. Did I pronounce all those words right? Yeah. Mostly. And that is Mostly? Really, I know. There was one I was... <laughs> should I re- redo it? No, I no, we're good. No, Retrogression. And that's, that's optimistic. Yeah. Right? That... that Pat yourself on the back, yeah. human. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> good job, humans. That we're, we're all on a trajectory of improvement. Yeah. Lowly conditioned to the highest standard yeah. as yet attained. So we still got ways to go, which is right for a, a white Victorian guy who thinks he's the the, the right uh, epitome, the the pinnacle of of where we should be. He's basically saying, "No, we're not." Yeah, he's probably just talking about all the savages. He's saying they'll they'll catch up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no, I think no, <laughs> and, I, I and we're think getting he better. Humans, just yeah. in general. He didn't say you know they have not attained our status. He kind of made it more open ended. Um, right, I'm, that's me. I'm I'm being optimistic, <laughs> but that, it, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. In that, in this case, it sounds like I mean he's suggesting this progression towards betterment, mm-hmm. right? But but 
but really in terms of general principles of evolution, it's not about this is that. Why, this is why I'm very surprised by the stance that James <laughs> oh, is yeah. taking in this episode because we don't talk about evolution being progressive. Or directional. But, right. Yeah. Well, but we'll you be, seem yeah. to be very, like, just by claiming a capital M, mm. you've, you're buying in. Oh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Unabashedly. Unabashedly, yeah. Because I'm an optimistic guy. I like, I like that paragraph. <laughs> I want a world in which women have the same equality as men we can, and everybody has the same equality. Look equal- at the world. It's on fire. <laughs> Supreme Court this week. I'm sorry. I have zero hope. This Maybe is fine. it's because I'm the one with ovaries. Everything is fine. <laughs> it's fine. The house is on fire. Yeah. No. But, but no, I understand. But yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about that. Because Darwin, even poo-poo's directional, you know, the, the mm-hmm. perfection direction, but... But know. not with morality. Not with morality. Up, well, upwards it goes, and onwards. Well, it goes back to, Mark, your original definition of right. those two. I, I like definition two because I'm not a big fan of definition one, which is this is what we think is moral, you know. And, and social groups come up with lots of definitions of what's the norm, and, mm-hmm. and they can be pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I like the rational thinking one. But, of course, that's vague. <laughs> My rational. And not really. It's actually my rational thing. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Yeah, so, so my take home from this would be that there is a capacity for this concept of morality in human beings that is, to me, is maybe an exaptation. Okay. Right? That it's like all these other things like that's been selected for like higher cognitive skills, our socialness mm-hmm. has created this thing that's morality that maybe secondarily is a, as a, you know, can be selected upon positively. But to me, it's more this like byproduct thing out there. And mm-hmm. so it's not something that we're moving towards. It's just maybe, sorry, I'm no. the downer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but do you think we should be moving toward it? Yeah, but should has nothing to do with our biological it's, evolution. It's is and no should. should. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as, as evolved beings that have this higher cognitive capacity, yes, we should go. We should go in those places, but mm-hmm. that's not an inevitability of our of our biological evolution. Oh, I I never said inevitable. Well, I can't even I say it. Inevitability. <laughs> that's why I never said it. I would hope for it, but <laughs> no. Anyway, um, I think we're done with this chapter. Yeah, 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 both of them. Yeah, bang. Two. We Boom. got you, friends. All right. We appreciate you listening to us. Don't forget to check out our website, uh, Discovering Darwin, one word, discoveringdarwin.blogspot.com. Uh, you can also get our podcast. You know, why am I telling you this? Because if you're, you're listening, listening to yeah. this, you already know. <laughs> but the, the, Tell your friends. Yeah, but Where the, they can get it. the website also has a, uh, will have a picture of Mark and his uh, table. Crook and all. Crook and all table. Oh. I have to go to your office and take a picture. I have to be in the, cr- in the picture well, with I'm going to take a picture of you, yeah. Okay. But there'll be um, some imagery and some, uh, and Sarah has some additional <laughs> papers about morality that have been published and we'll put those links in there. We didn't actually get there, but there's a lot of, Sarah's really big on getting additional research, and she threw in a bunch of papers, and I looked at some of them. They're really good, but unfortunately, we ran out of time. Uh, but again, thank you for listening to us, and we look forward to you listening to us a month from now at some point. <laughs> let's, let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. So thank you, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Nice. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nice. Nice.